Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. This Australian Investors Podcast episode is brought to you by The Intelligent Investor, Australia's premier investment research membership service. You can get a free trial for 15 days, no credit card details required. To access the insights of some of Australia's best analysts, use the coupon code RASK and secure your Intelligent Investor membership today. We're proud to have The Intelligent Investor as an ongoing supporter of the Australian Investors Podcast. As a result, RASK does not earn a volume-based fee. Simply head to intelligentinvestor.com.au or use the link in your podcast player to access your free trial. This episode of the Australian Investors Podcast is also proudly supported by SelfWealth, Australia's leading independent broker. Over 120,000 investors trust SelfWealth with over $9 billion in equities. With SelfWealth, you can trade ASX, US and Hong Kong listed shares for a flat fee. On a $10,000 investment with Comsec, you'd pay $29.95 in fees. Yet with SelfWealth, it's just $9.50. The thing I like about SelfWealth is the full access to fundamental company data and how easy it is to trade US, Hong Kong, and Aussie shares in one place. You can see your Apple shares and ACDC ETF right beside each other. To join SelfWealth now, use the link in your podcast player or head to selfwealth.com.au and use the coupon code RASK during sign-up. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives, so don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Drew Meredith, welcome back to the Australian Investors Podcast, mate. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, it's great, mate. We're we're continuing on our passive income series. If you do want to get in contact with us, be sure to send us an email, podcast at rask.com.au. Send us your questions because we're going to be... uh, talking uh, and answering questions in the final installment of this five-part series. But today, we're on part two, and we're talking about the defensive side of a portfolio. Um, Not only the defensive side, but also the defensive alternative side of a portfolio. So here, we're talking about um, bonds, we're talking about high yield, we're talking about credit um, in various guises. And we're going to break down Drew's I guess, strategy for active versus passive across these buckets, how to think about alternatives. Uh, we might even mention, you know, term deposits or TDs and those types of things too. Drew, just maybe to set the set the scene for our listeners, um, what are the most common types of bonds and bond funds or ETFs and what place do they have in a diversified portfolio? 
Yeah, it probably is probably the most exciting part of portfolio construction, isn't it? Fixed income and, and bonds. <laughs> Maybe it is. Oh, I've got to, it's got to be. <laughs> We're stretching it there. I'm trying to trying to get the energy and ramp it up a little bit. <laughs> no, you're doing well. Uh, I mean, you're doing there's well. Three, I'll, get, I'll get serious. There's, yeah, there's three, three types of bonds, which is quite confusing. Uh, and there's a lot of subtypes underneath. So government bonds, clearly US government, Australian government. Uh, that, mm-hmm. that only takes the federal level of government. So in semi-government bonds, you probably think it's like, public-private partnerships, but it tends to be more state government bonds fall into the semi-government, even though they're still government. They're just called semi-government for some reason. And then corporate mm-hmm. bonds. Uh, so, you know, for instance, something issued by Woolies and or Commonwealth Bank, and that can act, spread the entire part of a, a company's uh, balance sheet or capital stack, as they call it. So there's, you know, asset-backed securities, there's hybrids, which we'll talk about, um, a massive spread of underlying subtypes there as well. Okay. So how big is the bond market? And um, I guess why would any why are we can talking about this today? We know that there are standard 60-40 portfolios and all that sort of stuff, but why are we talking about it? Why is it important? Uh, apparently there's a little stats I found over the weekend that the global bond market is 120 trillion US dollars. So massive in size. So you think every state, every country that's running deficit or has some sort of government debt, uh, it's huge. Uh, by comparison, the Aussie corporate bond market is about two trillion dollars, um, and I think what's the ASX at the moment? I think it's about two or three trillion as well. So yeah, in it's terms somewhere of in that range, capital yeah. size, about yeah, about the same size as the ASX. Um, so clearly an important part of how companies are funding themselves to to grow and, and keep operating, I think is one thing we kind of forget about in fixed income, that it's capital, instead of having equity, it's capital to help businesses grow and acquire and, and innovate um, the other side of the uh, balance sheet. Mm. Yeah. So, um, I mean, there are plenty of resources out there for people to learn about bonds and uh, I guess just like the basics of them. But like you said, it's a different part of the capital stack. We've got... Um, for a company, it's you know, that permanent, or not permanent, but you know, long, long-term funding uh, typically pays you know in interest uh, back to the investors, and they go and invest that money in projects with a higher, higher ROI. Um, and for governments, it's very much the same. Um, it's used to stimulate the economy and so on and so forth. So why why are we what do what do investors get? Just a quick one: what do we, what do investors get from investing in bond portfolios? The old adage of diversification, so bonds should typically interact or um, perform differently in different market environments compared to equities. Bonds tend to outperform in recessions or difficult environments for equity markets. They provide, haven't recently, but they provide income and pretty much close to guaranteed or the risk-free rate of income. Uh, And with that is capital security. So depending on who you're lending to, uh, it's a legislated agreement that you get your money back at the end or you get your $100 that you invested back at the end. So they're kind of the three benefits. And, you know, I think this 60-40 portfolio has had its worst start, one of the worst, six worst starts in 100 years, uh, according to another podcast I was listening oh, to. Wow. Um, so some of the diversification benefits haven't worked so far, but that in the environment we're in today, it kind of changes and potentially flips the script on the 60-40 for the next few years too. Yeah, and we saw that during the GFC too, where um, a lot of things that investors thought weren't correlated turned out to move 
um, very similarly during that that period of uncertainty. So um, it is important that when we look at diversifiers in portfolios that we acknowledge that uncertainty and that relationship. You know, we've, we've talked about Bitcoin not being, or at least some people did, talked about Bitcoin being a diversifier for portfolios. And as of the date of this recording, um, yeah, it's probably not turning out to be that so much. Um, okay, so let's just go through these buckets quickly, Drew, and how you use them in portfolios at Waddle Partners and how most um, advisors would use them. So let's talk about government bonds. Um, like you said, federal government bonds, US, Australian, European, whatever. Um, how are they used and why are they used in portfolios? Yeah, I think it's probably worth touching on the types of strategy, strategies you can get to to drum down to that too. So you got passive like you do in, in equities, which is index tracking. So essentially the more you issue in debt, the larger your position is in an index. So sometimes it's counterintuitive. Active is where groups are betting, you know, betting on duration or taking more risk in different countries uh, to generate uh, high returns in the benchmark. Then you've got single sector, which would be like that fund only invests into hybrids or that fund only invests into higher quality corporate or high yield bonds and then multi-strategy or multi-sector which invests across could hold some hybrids could hold some emerging market debt uh, and so on you know there's there's probably about 50 sub-asset classes in there Um, how we use government bonds traditionally it's just a diversifier so one the first step we take when we're building client portfolios is to understand how much capital or how much income they're going to spend or how much income they need for the next three three to five years and then always ensure they've got enough money in low-risk investments that if the rest of the market collapse 40 percent and stay there for 10 years we know we could sell their lower risk government semi corporate bonds and pay for their income and that kind of gives that sleep at night comfort that that portion of your portfolio is taken care of all the time um, it's kind of been challenged this year so or at least the Passive approach has been challenged this year because increasing interest rates has set the value of bonds across the board down at the same time market, equity markets are falling. Um, but there, I mean, internally we've we've applied more of an active approach to bonds, which means it's performed very differently uh, to that. So essentially, it's a diversifier, something to sell if everything hits the fan. I won't swear on the podcast, uh, and a source of cash when you need it. So, Drew, how about then semi-government bonds? Where would we have them sit in a portfolio and how are they maybe different to, or if they're not different at all, to like uh, federal government bonds? I think in the nature of fixed income, semi-government uh, is very similar to uh, Commonwealth government. You know, it's kind of essentially guaranteed by... You know, state government, if a state government goes bankrupt, clearly the Commonwealth government's going to bail them out to make sure hospitals and everything keep running. So there's an implicit guarantee there. I think the benefit is you can pull some other levers on credit risk, uh, duration and liquidity. So you might find more mispricings uh, in state government bonds because less people invest in them. The way fixed income works for a lot of groups and pension funds is they're only allowed to invest into certain ratings or certain portions of government, semi-government and corporate. So Sometimes you've got people pulling out of sectors or buying into sectors, which creates mispricing opportunities. So I think generally your yield's a little bit higher. Uh, duration's probably similar, but slightly less liquid um, just because there's, it's a smaller market than the trillion dollars in debt we have mm. at a Commonwealth level. So for most uh, investors, the, the corporate market is probably where um, a lot of their attention goes because it is quite 
varied in terms of you've got the full spectrum of um, credit ratings, you've got multiple markets, multiple industries, you, know, you can be sector specific, so on and so forth. Um, this is something that we've spoken about on the show before, and we're going to talk about things like hybrids and all that in a minute. Um, but where do you use like corporate uh, bonds in, in the portfolios? I think depending on, we probably view it on credit rating and credit risk. So initially you'd assume highly rated corporates like Woolworths, CBA, I keep bringing up Woolworths, infrastructure assets. You've probably seen them as the core, but as you move down the risk spectrum and you start to go into sub-investment grade, what they call high yield, then they start to creep into their kind of defensive alternatives where there's a little bit more risk of um, capital loss or volatility, even if it's very small. Um, I think the, one of the keys here is that you get, you should be, and you do get paid more for taking more risk. So the Commonwealth government bonds considered the risk-free rate in you know, the old capital asset pricing model. Um, state government should pay a little bit more income than that. And then corporate bonds will pay almost a premium over the 10-year government bond yield. And the 10-year Aussie government bond yield is about guess, give or take 3.1% at the moment. So naturally, your corporate bonds are starting to pay things like 3 4 5%. So I think, I mean, the primary source you look for is income uh, and that diversification benefit of acting differently when markets fall. It's just not in this crisis, which is a little bit unique in, mm, in history. And, and here we can see that we'll get things like um, floating rates and we'll get things um, that are linked, right? So we can get some protection from... I guess, the the sensitivity of bonds to interest rate rises or inflation and those types of things. Yeah, definitely. I mean, government and semi-government are pretty much all fixed rate bonds. Um, and that's why you've seen them f- as interest rates increase. A fixed rate bond is worth less uh, on the market if you sold it today, but obviously you get your money back if you wait till maturity. Uh, whereas f- as you move into corporate and then you move into private credit uh, even more so, um, pretty much everything becomes floating rate or at least a big uh, selection of floating rates. So, you know, your income, your interest payment is reset every quarter or every six months based on a percentage, a, a fixed percentage above the prevailing market rate. So they could say bank bill swap rate plus 3% is an example for a hybrid or preference share. Mm. So we've, we've talked a lot about, I guess, from a high level, how we can think about the different buckets. Um, how then do you go about picking uh, funds to invest with in, um, whether they be through like your ETF vehicle, active or passive, whatever? What are you looking at? Like I've asked you in anticipation for today's show to think of like some maybe like five things that investors can consider when they're studying or researching a bond fund. Um, you know, which goes into your process, I guess. Yeah, so the first one and particularly relevant at the moment is interest rate duration. So duration is is the sensitivity of the portfolio of bonds to movement in interest rates. If your duration is, say, five or the index is seven, if interest rates go up 1% like they have in like the last four weeks, you can you can have a capital loss on the value of about 7%. Um, that's a kind of inverse relationship. So that has incredibly relevant last year and in the lead up to interest rate hikes, but less relevant. Um, maybe less relevant, maybe more relevant now, that interest rates have increased and bonds have fallen in value pretty significantly, about 15%. Uh, the next one would be credit spread duration. 
which is the same concept, how sensitive the value of the bond is to movements in interest rates, but this time it's the how, how sensitive they are uh, to movements in the, the spread of higher return that you get in different credit ratings. So, you know, the traditionally say it's a triple B versus an A rated bond, you're paid an extra two and a half percent. If if that spreads out to say three percent, then you know it's looking more attractive. And if it's uh, 1.5, then that's that's where you're starting to look at credit spread duration. So if this market spread moves, you lose how much lose uh, capital you're going to gain or lose in that situation. They're all it's quite you know detailed concepts for uh, fixed income investments. <laughs> it's not not as easy as a PE ratio. <laughs> no, it's not as easy as a PE ratio, but it. But it makes sense, right? It makes sense. So, um, and I think that, yeah, that kind of relates to the next point. Which, yeah, credit quality. So, you know, what is the credit rating of the individual bonds that are held in that portfolio? And what is the rating uh, of that portfolio when it's all held together? Uh, obviously, you can take more. There's two different ways to take risk. You can take duration risk and bet that interest rates will fall. Uh, or you can take credit risk and, and bet that, you know, higher risk, perceived higher risk companies are going to be fine and you're going to get paid more for effectively lending them capital. So, um, there's also this kind of unique thing that anything that isn't triple A or triple B or higher is called junk. But there is simply, you know, I think over fifty percent of all the companies in the world are a sub investment grade. So those companies aren't all going bankrupt. Um, they're just either not interested in getting credit rating, it's too expensive, or not relevant to them, and they're happy to pay the higher rates that come with it. Um, I think concentration would be the fourth. You know, there's there's very little equity. Uh, sorry, not equity upside. There's very little upside in fixed income and bonds. So you want to make sure you're protecting the downside as much as possible. Um, so concentration, meaning you've got a diverse range of borrowers, same as you'd look at diversification in an equity portfolio. Sorry, Drew, just on that, what would be what would be an example of a, a like a bond portfolio that is concentrated, or uh, is this like a kind of depends on where it sits if it's defensive alts or in the core you might have like a very typical diversified bond fund in the core but then you're happy to take concentration in that in the the defensive alts i think you always want diversification whether it's in the core or not you i think you normally you you're going to be concentrated in a benchmark hugging or a passive strategy because the u.s and australian government bonds dominate about 60 to 70 percent like the MSCI and equities, um, but just because there are so many issues, there's so many company-specific risks. The more I almost see, the more holdings you get, the more true example you get of the bond market, not just of uh, even a subsleeve of the bond market. Um, you're trying to look at it in individual sleeves so you can assess the risk of each of those. Um, and that's you know it could be finding out what sectors they're lending to. Are they lending too much to leisure sectors, to tourism, to sectors of the economy that may be struggling or property or wherever it happens to be. Um, and the last one is pretty simple, which is yield. So running yield being the, you know, the kind of the trailing interest you've been paid based on the most recent payment and yield to maturity, which is based on the dollar value you paid today. What annualized yield you're going to get if that's repaid at $100 um, at the end of the term. Mm. Okay. Um and I know there's one extra thing that you wanted to tack on the end here, which is, um, I guess, just the size and experience. So can you yeah, yeah. can you tell me a bit more about this? 
Yeah, I think uh, bond market is pretty unique that a lot of the trading is still over the counter. You know, that, like literally you pick up a phone, ask someone how much they'll pay for a, an asset. Um, there's, there's obviously you can see more information on some of the ASX run systems, um, but it's very, very small community uh, and very, you know, yeah, less transparent than equity is probably the easiest way to say it. So having size and experience in the market, even just who you know, knowing all the other counterparties that might be interested in your bonds is more important uh, than anything. And then uh, there's a lot of, obviously, people are uh, bonds of debt. So there's always a need to roll over debt or add issue new debt. Uh, so being able to negotiate with issuers and get good terms when they're issuing new debt or making sure you're on the priority and you're getting access to those, could be a hybrid capital note, whatever it is, making sure you're able to guarantee access to the ones you want. Um, and you can't just pop up tomorrow and get that. Mm. Um, so, Listeners will know that we're talking about normally when we talk uh, portfolios from a high level, we just say, you know, risk on, risk off assets. We have like typically we talk about equities on the risk on or growth side, and then on the risk off, we have bonds or cash or whatever. Um, but when we talk to you, it's talking about like the four buckets. And today we're also exploring the one of those buckets, which is um, defensive alts. And um, we'll get to, I'm going to give you a bit of a pop quiz and a mini of, of different types of strategies and where they fall into these different buckets so people can really get a sense of how you use them. But how about hybrids? In Australia, hybrids are hugely popular, um, particularly amongst um, slightly older investors and investors who are transitioning for that income. Um, and that's what this series is all about, passive income, right? So um, where, where do hybrids in particular sit? Do you use them? Um, I guess is another part of that. And then we can maybe – there is one listed product here that I know of, which is um, the, the BetaShares hybrid ETF. I think it's like an active fund or managed fund or something like that, but it's actively – it's listed on the, the exchange under HBRD. So maybe if, if that's an example or not, you can t- take that and run with it. But I guess hybrids in general, how are you using them, where they fall? Yeah, we've been long proponents of hybrids. They kind of they're you know hybrids, so they're part equity and part debt. Um, they tend to more, more recently they've fallen into our fixed income rather than our defensive alternatives. But there's a case to be made for probably for either. I'd say our our view has always been there's a difference between a bank or an insurance company hybrid and a corporate hybrid, like seven preference shares which we held uh, many years ago, um, and that being. Banks and insurance companies have capital adequacy requirements and they constantly have to report to APRA and authorities to make sure they have enough capital on their balance sheet to, you know, to meet the worst case scenario effectively. Um, so we essentially we don't touch anything outside of bank issued hybrids in our fixed income component. And if we see an opportunity in a higher risk hybrid, that'd fall into the equity which it just complicates matters even more likely trying to explain why a hybrid goes in there. Um, but I think they've proven they've been volatile. So March 2020, some hybrids traded from $100 down to about $85. Um, we happened to, it was essentially people were selling anything they had, uh, not that there was anything wrong or they thought they were going to go, you know, fall over. Uh, uh, essentially, people were selling everything they had to cash up and hopefully buy something else or just cash up, essentially. And hybrids were usually you go from your lowest risks down when you go to cash and you sell your equities last is how a lot of people think. Um, but they're essentially an important source of capital 
for the banking sector. So what you're betting on is uh, that banks won't risk their reputation and their ability to raise further capital by not redeeming a preference share at the $100 par value. Um, I mean, there's discussion, there's talk that banks, uh, one or two banks nearly went, were insolvent during the GFC. Um, I think probably spoken about who they, who they might be, but it's irrelevant because they weren't. And when worse comes to worse, you know, the bank government guarantee came in. Uh, there's the four pillars of the bank system is always going to be reasonably well supported, but there is the risk. If one of them went insolvent, they could convert your investment to equity and you could have, you know, a capital loss of 40 to 50%. Uh, we think that's incredibly unlikely and the high yield, which at the moment I think is about four to four and a half percent is more attractive. Uh, it is enough kind of reward for the very small risk of that happening. Was there, Drew, I was just Googling, um, was, was it, did the NAB hybrids get converted during the COVID crash? I'm trying to think off the top of my head. Um, now, there's maybe- always the option, uh, not the option to convert. It's just a, quite a unique structure because the hybrids are technically issued by a separate entity of the bank, and then the bank resells, uh, essentially repurchases those purchases those back. I think is the correct explanation. I'm happy to take commentary on. <laughs> Whether that's right or not, but it's always a separate entity. Um, if you're, if yeah, if you convert a debt instrument to equity, you're not going to be raising that debt instrument again, or you're going to be paying seven or eight percent to do it, which is the reputation risk that they carry if they don't. Yeah, right. Because I, I, yeah, I, I shouldn't be doing this live on air, but uh, yeah, there. I, I remember seeing that like the some of the NAB hybrids got whacked um, during COVID, but it could have just been like just the 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 face value, like the price, the price of the. The hybrids, but um, yeah, okay. So I've, I've kind of taken us on a bit of a tangent there. So you could make a case for them fitting in either side. We of- happened to buy in during that period. Okay, right. And um, yeah. did you did you keep holding them, or was it just more like an arbitrage, shorter term play? No. So there was a very big difference between the performance of uh, sh- uh, hybrids that we're going to redeem in the next twelve months and hybrids that we're going to redeem in five years. The longer term ones fell off significantly more. So while some fell from 100 to 95, others fell from 100 to 85. So we saw this arbitrage and made the decision that we didn't think the banks would collapse, uh, sold the short, bought the long. Uh, they all traded back to 100 within about four weeks. It was the quickest kind of arbitrage I've seen. Um, and it was there's sort of additional returns you can generate. And a few other kind of listed investment trusts had a similar experience where it was due to the forced seller rather than a problem with the investment. Um, hmm. Okay, interesting. interesting. Yeah, so that if there's that type of dislocation again, I think that's a good um, way to kind of compartmentalize that. Like where is the issue coming from? Like you said, if there's – and you said it before about the timing and – strategies of institutional capital on the bond side of portfolios and uh, bond markets, how that can impact things. So, um, so again, we're talking about like defensive and defensive alts. Um, I'm going to just give you say four things and four different types of products or investments that people could make. And I'm going to be very specific here about the types of investments. Um, and, I'm going to ask you to give me just like a 20-second response to these, like where they fall, if they're purely defensive or if they're defensive alts uh, for, you, for you at Waddle Partners. And maybe just imagine like, I don't know, a f- 50-year-old couple or single investor balance risk profile. So just like 
really generic. Um, and obviously, when we answer these questions, we're just being very general in nature. We're not talking about anyone in particular. Just want to emphasize that. But on on the show in the past, Drew, um, and, and I'm going to ask you for allocations as well. So not just where do they fall, but how much could potentially go into this type of investment. So on the on the show in the past, we had um, Andrew Swartz from Qualitas. So this is a high quality um, real estate debt fund. It's listed on the ASX under the uh, ticker symbol QRI. Um, where would this fall? I tend to, without knowing the product that well, I tend to say defensive alternatives, high yield, singular kind of asset class exposure to property underneath. Um, so likely in defensive alternatives because and because it's listed, it'll be a bit more volatile. So we kind of separate volatility fixed income versus defensive alternatives. And I'd say anywhere from 10 to 20% of that defensive alternative sleeve, which means, you know, you might have five investments in your defensive alternative sleeve. Okay. That makes sense. And how about something like vanilla, like the Vanguard Australian fixed interest ETF? It trades under the ticker symbol VAF. Uh, core. So, you know, the the you basically you're tracking the Bloomberg Global or no, the Australian aggregate bond index. So, essentially, it's 60% or 70%. Australian Commonwealth Government bonds. Core now, probably 50%. If you talked to me in December last year, I would have said, don't hold anything because it's long duration. <laughs> uh, but that's starting to change. But in a normal environment where you're expecting bonds to perform well and uh, or provide a ballast, then you're looking at as much as 50% of your core fixed income allocation. Yep. So just to emphasize then, so if you're saying if you're at a 60-40 portfolio and hypothetically you had you know, of that 40%, 30% was in your core, then you're saying 50% of that, just to confirm like what, yeah, where we're going with this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I just say 40%. Yeah. Just say it's all core. That's the easiest way to assume it. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so people, we just don't want you to think that it's like 50% of your, all of your risk off assets to be in this one ETF. Um, okay. So what, what about a REIT? So we've had REITs on the show before, um, uh, like managers and whatever, and um, there are certain aspects of it um, where people might be thinking, oh, you know, it pays a reasonably consistent yield. Uh, it's diversified. Like something like Goodman Group, which is a massive part of, say, the VAP ETF here in Australia. Um, where would something like Goodman Group or REIT sit? So when we look at defensive versus growth alternatives, we think it fits property and real estate and infrastructure fits into alternatives. We look at what's the history of capital losses and what's the volatility. Uh, A REITs have been more volatile or similarly volatile equity markets. So it fits into growth alternatives for us because it's a bit more equity-like. Um, you know, probably even though the asset base would be diff- potentially the same, uh, un- you know, unlisted longer-term trusts probably fit more closely to defensive alternatives because they're less volatile. Um, and you can, I mean, Goodman Group's down, at, I think, more than 10% or something recently, but high quality. Uh, so growth alternatives. Um, and then within that, you're probably having five to seven individual investments. So 10 to 15% of the growth alternatives bucket. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. But so this is interesting because some people would see REITs as a defensive play. Um, for whatever reason. So, um, like whether it's inflation being inf- linked to inflation and higher CPI pushing you know, rental yields higher or whatever. Um, okay, so that's growth alternatives. Final one, which is probably a bit of low-hanging fruit, which is like imagine you've got like a Macquarie Bank account, you've got a TD, like a term deposit, where does that sit? 
we tend to say if it's under 12 months in cash, if it's over 12 months to maturity, it's in fixed interest because it's not easily accessible um, and there's potentially break fees. And we'd say, you know, as much as 30, depending on the rate on offer, which is actually about 30, you can get about 3% for some two-year term deposits now, uh, as much as 30% of that portfolio. But it really depends on, yeah, what return you're trying to achieve because obviously, you're guaranteeing that return. Great if markets fall. Not so great if interest rates keep going up and you're missing out on returns. So um, up to 30% probably. Yeah, right. Okay. It's crazy. Like, do you think a year ago we were talking about lucky to get a 1% interest rate and now we're getting 3% potentially um, on some bank accounts and term deposits. Okay, so just to recap there, in terms of where they sit, we've got um, like a real estate debt fund um, that would be in defensive alts. Then we've got the VAF ETF, which is diversified um, Aussie fixed interest. That's um, right in the core fixed income allocation. A REIT like Goodman Group is growth alternatives, not defensive alternatives. And a TD, depending on what it is, um, is cash um, or fixed interest in that core. Okay, great. So... um, the I guess the one thing that's really interesting to investors right now is um, credit and, and high yield. You mentioned before that sub investment grade could be as many as as much as fifty percent of issues sit below that line. Um, how can investors access that marketplace? Because um, you know, can they go directly like they can with equities, or what's the preferred way in your opinion? I think the challenge of bond and fixed income markets is they're structured for wholesale and institutional investors. So the minimum investment in some case, like a million dollars for a single bond, and no one can do that. So um, we tend to use specialist fund managers in different sectors of the market. Uh, there's, But there's a growing range of, uh, you know, what do you call them, securitization groups that also, you know, apply for $50 million in bonds and then break them up and separate them out. Uh, we've never gone along that track, adding another, you know, broken firm. We think we can generally get a, an expert in the industry uh, that will manage an entire portfolio with a single objective rather than trying to, you know, put together bond issues uh, on a regular basis. I think hybrids you can clearly buy on the ASX or through a, um, through the ETF uh, we might have discussed earlier. Um, and then we tend to go look at all the different all the different sleeves of the fixed income market. Which parts of the capital stack of company do we want to be exposed to? Like real estate backed credit, like uh, Qualitas mortgages, commercial property backed debt, normal corporate debt, green bonds. So bonds issued by say Woolies that have to put solar panels on their roof. Private equity. Uh, so lending money to private equity that is taking over companies. Um, there's a growing and massive range of opportunities there and you can get very niche in terms of exactly what security you want and what groups you want to partner with. Um, we'll get to some of like whether you go passive or active in certain things in just a moment, but do you have some examples of uh, managers that you've found to be really impressive across a- any of these buckets? So like um, whether it's credit, whether it's Aussie fixed interest, global fixed interest, semis, whatever, um, any managers that stood out to you um, or currently stand out to you and why? I'd, I'd be interested in the why. Yeah, I think there'd be a different one for each part of the um, capital stack. So Coolabar, you know, you would have – have you interviewed Chris, Chris Joy, Joy before? Yeah. Um, they Barton's do basically – he's one of the – 
uh, smartest in Australia at like uh, Australian government bond and semi-government. Um, and then I think he manages one of BetaShares hybrid ETFs as well. That might be the active management. Um, and then we slip into different parts of the asset classes. So uh, metrics, I think you've maybe interviewed Andrew Lockhart. So he's basically no, a I haven't actually. massive non-bank financial institution. Something like, is it zero to, maybe it's 8 billion or more. Sorry if it's wrong. Uh, but they're a listed investment trust that uh, has a pool of, I think, a lot of real estate-backed debt and uh, other issues. So you can buy them on the market. And you can also buy them as a fund. Uh, Yarra Capital um, have, uh, there's a guy over there that used to run the uh, Victorian Funds Management Corporation credit portfolio. So he uh, has a credit strategy at Yarra. And then Elcyon, who are, uh, probably one of the longest standing real estate, private real estate backed debt managers. I think they're the, probably in four different sleeves of the portfolio. Um, and that's most of that is about depth, experience, and as I said before, knowing the people in the industry and know who you're dealing with. Mm. Um, so, who would be the most impressive that you've come across in your time? I left this, yeah. And I left this one out, which is, um, it's you know, bond managers are probably more interesting than uh, equity managers. We found there's a Franklin Templeton has an absolute return uh, fixed income team, which means they're essentially trying to generate a positive return in every environment um, to portfolio managers and then analysts. So Andrew Kenobi uh, and, damn it, I can't remember his colleague's name, but I'm sure I'll come up with it. Uh, so that's long, short. They're flexible duration, so they can they don't have they haven't had to take interest rate risk as interest rates have risen. They can be negative and positive duration. Uh, and essentially they're trying to find mispricings in bond issues and corporate bonds um, all over Australia and sometimes around the world as well. Is this Chris Siniakov? Yeah, that's right. Sorry Chris. So the yeah the kind of insight they provide into their portfolio and almost to, to invest in the bond market in Australia, you have to have an insight into how the government is operating and how monetary policy is operating. Um, so they're two of the probably the smartest bond managers I've met. Yeah, right. Okay. Um, so I've got two more questions for you and maybe we can take this one as a bit of a, a punchy question as well. So I'm just going to ask you, do you prefer to have passive or active exposure here? Uh, and I'm going to give you some ex examples. So how about in Aussie corporate bonds, do you prefer to go active or passive here and why? I prefer active in Aussie corporate. I think there's heaps of relative value opportunities. There's a diverse range of companies, the, you know, the corporate bond benchmark will favour the companies that issue the most debt or the most levered companies. Um, and I think there's heaps of opportunity for information asymmetry and for bond managers to do research and gain um, an edge from that. Okay. Um, in global fixed interest, obviously, often we see these um, as hedged fund, uh, hedged uh, currency hedged uh, global fixed interest portfolios. Would you prefer these to be passive or active um, when you're building? building out that core? I think the concentration of global fixed income, where there's 70% or so in US treasuries, just means you're better off starting as a passive approach for that. It's very difficult to take enough risk to outperform the benchmark when it's so big. So passive on that one. Uh, more comfortable with that today than six months ago. Yeah, for sure. 
Um, okay, so final question here, which is a bit of a, um, I guess, a teaser for you, um, and this is just to round out a bit of this conversation um, with a with a kind of strategy or quote from um, Warren Buffett, who said that he'd invest his estate or his wife's inheritance into 90% equity index funds and 10% into short-term government bonds, so treasuries. That's basically a 90-10 portfolio. What do you think? My real answer or? Yeah, give us your real answer. Go on. Don't hold back. We, we're This is a truth podcast. <laughs> I love Warren Buffett. I think he's incredible, uh, but I think he's the most over, overquoted person in finance. Um you know, it's one of the uh, the things of say one thing and do another. So if you look at how he invests, we talked about this a couple of podcasts ago, didn't we? Uh, he invests completely the opposite as the way he tells everyone else to invest. So his biggest holdings in Apple, he takes companies private, he takes complete control. Um, I think he's more likely to invest his wife's inheritance in Berkshire and never touch it. Uh, would be the more likely result. Essentially, you're, you're buying high quality businesses, letting them compound is what his whole premise is not buying benchmark and short-term govy debt. <laughs> mm. Okay, then. Well, then, how about this then? As a, um, just a if we zoom out of bus. Sorry, for a Warren. Second, <laughs> yeah, you, that's a sin, mate. In in finance. Uh, so, uh, how about if we zoom out of Buffett for a second and we just think of this, the allocation of ninety ten um, and broad based across both uh, equities and bonds. Um, we're not so bored when you've got treasuries, but um, how, do you, how do you think about that? Like if you had, a say, a younger person, an 18-year-old coming in, would you s- suggest that something like that is appropriate, just generally speaking? Yeah, I think if you put away capital for emergencies and you're taking care of your lifestyle, then 90-10 would be fine. You've got 10% sitting there for uh, you know going in and out of cash, pay bills, pay fees if you need to. Um, I think it's fine. And then you, I mean, we probably have a starting point that's 50-50. You perfect split of 50-50. And then do you need more income? Do you pursuing more growth? And you move move the dial from there. Um, and then even with if you've got 90% in equities you can or in markets, you can always introduce alternatives like growth alternatives that are less volatile depending on the conditions if you're not as comfortable. So um, for a young person, that's fine. Older, you're gradually moving towards it, but depending on your expectations. So if you don't want to leave any capital to your children, well, you could probably just hold term deposits, but you'll quickly spend it down. Uh, if you're balancing growth and income, then you're starting to look towards a balanced or balanced growth kind of portfolio. At, at the moment, it's probably around the 40-60, just with a different makeup to the traditional 40-60. Mm, okay. Um one thing I'll just cut you off guard here is, um, do you remember hear about that um, that idea that you want your age in bonds? Have you come across that one? So, like, if you were fifty, you'd have fifty percent. Or I, I wish uh, investing was that easy, <laughs> uh, and I, you'd hate to have done that now because the the U.S. bond market is down eighteen percent in six months. So, if you had eighty percent of your capital there, well, that's down to. What like 60, 65%, you've, you've lost 15% in six months. So um, I think there's so many other considerations to have there. Um, and really, you just got to tie how much you have in low risk to how much, what return you want to achieve because ultimately that that is the drag on your returns uh, over the long term. So if you need 3% per annum, then buy a term deposit. Um, 
if and then that should be your starting point. Don't take if you don't need to take risk, don't take it, and then incrementally take it on the way up. Yeah, cool. That's a good way to end the show, mate. So this is episode two of Passive Income on the Australian Investors Podcast. Uh, you can find Drew Meredith at waddlepartners.com.au and all the links will be in the show notes. Um, please send us your questions because we like to bring this conversation to life. Remember that we're talking about building a properly diversified portfolio that can produce passive income. Um, and we're talking, we're exploring not just as you heard in this episode, ETFs, we're talking about managed funds, we're talking about uh, tax, we talked in the first episode about tax and growth alternatives, defensive alternatives. Um, we're going to have a hypothetical scenario in an upcoming episode where we I put Drew to the test, um, I give him a, a situation and uh, we're going to work through that and build a portfolio out of it. And then we're going to talk about uh, different uh, risks and, and mistakes that people make in building this type of portfolio. So um, Drew's going to bring to the table some ways that people definitely will go wrong. And and then finally, we've got the Q&A session. So you can send your questions to podcast at rask.com.au. That's podcast at rask.com.au. Please use the subject line passive uh, in your email because we're probably going to get quite a few emails and um, we want to prioritize those that are associated with this series. So please do that. Um, Drew Meredith, Certified Financial Planner, thanks for taking the time to join me on the podcast today, mate. Thanks for having me again. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.